Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, good morning, everybody. And we are back in the amazing and uh, powerful book of Romans, God's power to transform anyone. This is an unmatched book, the book of Romans. There is nothing like it, not, not just in the Bible, but nothing like it in the world, this amazing book of Romans. All right, well, during an edition of a news program, 60 Minutes, uh, years and years ago when Dan Rather was doing some of the interviewing, he interviewed a guy named Jack Welch. Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric at the time, a very successful man. And at the end of the interview, Dan Rather asked him this question. He said, what's the toughest question you've ever been asked? And Welch replied this. He said, the question was, do you think you'll go to heaven? Do you think you'll go to heaven? And then Dan Rather asked, well, what did you, how did you answer that question? And here's what he said, quote, it's a long answer, but I said that if caring about people, if giving it your all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple times and no one's proud of that, I haven't done everything right all the time, I think I got a shot. I'm in no hurry to get there and to find out anytime soon. Now that is a very, very common way to respond to this question. Do you think you'll go to heaven? Or how do you think you'll go to heaven? Uh, It's a common misconception. If, If I do the best I can and basically be a good person, you know, God grades on the curve and it's gonna be okay. He'll be nice to me. I'm a basically a pretty, pretty decent fella. <clears throat> but I just want to just remind us again here, and you know, I think it's so important to get this through our thick skulls, and, and Paul certainly wanted to make it, make it uh, a very important part of our doctrine as Christians, and that is that um, no one can be saved through good works. And this concept of being saved by doing something good uh, has no basis in Scripture whatsoever, in Scripture from beginning to end. Now, I will say this this morning. Some people think <clears throat> that uh, it was different back in the Old Testament. Before Jesus died on the cross, people were saved differently. And sometimes I feel like, um, you know, we've, there's so many good doctrines out there, but sometimes the, some of the doctrinal teaching has chopped up the Bible so much that it gets so confusing like God was a totally different God at certain times and he did certain things in different ways. Like, listen, there's a few things God has done differently, but I will say for, uh, for by and large, God, God has done the same thing all throughout history and especially when it comes to salvation, it has never changed, not, not in the slightest. Some people say, well, in the Old Testament, as long as people obeyed God's laws and <clears throat> back then, then they could be accepted with God. And that's kind of how it worked back then. It's different now. In fact, uh, 
Dr. Harry Ironside. He was, for 18 years, he was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, and he told about a time that he went on vacation, and he went to a church, and he sat in a Sunday school class in this church. <laughs> How'd you like that, to have this guy in your, in your class? But uh, the teacher in the, in the class asked, how, how were people saved in the Old Testament times? And after a pause, one man put up his question and said, uh, by keeping the law. And uh, that's right, said the teacher. But uh, Dr. Ironside interrupted, he said, you know, I just want to just mention my Bible says that the deeds, by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified. And the teacher, a bit embarrassed, said, okay, thank you. Uh, well, does somebody else uh, have an idea? And then somebody else rose their hand and said, well, they were saved by bringing sacrifices to God. That's how they were saved. Yes, that's right, said the teacher. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Ironside said, you know, excuse me, my Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And uh, obviously by this time the, the teacher knew this visitor had uh, some more insight than he did about the word of God. He said, why don't you tell us then how people were saved in the Old Testament? <coughs> and you know what he said? Dr. Ironside opened to the book of Romans and he explained that we are saved by faith. We're saved by faith. The same, and they were saved by faith. The same way people are saved today is the same way people were saved back then. There is no difference. Now Paul has spent the first three chapters of Romans proving that no one can earn heaven through good deeds. It is just impossible. Remember, like we said last week, it would be like all of us trying to jump from Pier 39 to Alcatraz. Uh, we would all fall short. It, even if, and that's why Romans 3.23 says we all fall short of the glory of God. Some may be able to jump a little further, but it doesn't really matter because all of our good deeds are pitifully short of the glory of God. There is just not enough good that we can work up to get to heaven. The only way we could be good enough to get to heaven is to do what he says right here in verse 28. So let's start there, Romans 3:28, where we left off last week. Therefore, we conclude, Paul says, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So mankind, he says, is justified by faith and faith alone, not the deeds of the law. Now remember, there was a blend of Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ at that time, and uh, just like there are a blend of people coming to Christ from all over the world now, but back then in the early church, the Jews, the Gentiles, they were all coming to Christ and they were sitting in church together and hearing this. And the Jews, by and large, had their head somewhere similar to Jack Welch, like we talked about a moment ago. Just do your best to obey God's law, and, and since you're a Jew, God grades on a curve, he's nice, he loves you as a Jew, and so he, God's gonna let you in. Just obey uh, the, the deeds of the law, do the deeds of the law as best you can. God will let you in. But Paul says, I conclude with all of this here that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, what has to happen is there has to be a miraculous righteousness from outside of us that comes in. That's the only way, and that's what justification is. God placing righteousness on our account just as if I'd never sinned. And so it has to be a miraculous righteousness. And that only comes through faith. <clears throat> and Paul's going to explain that it's always been this way. Even in the Old Testament, even when God gave the law, it was still not about saving people. 
The Old Testament law was given at a time when still everyone was saved by faith. So all of the people hearing this letter, sitting in the church, the Jews, the Gentiles, would be all be taking this in. And so Paul anticipates the question now that these early church people would have. And we really need to put ourselves in their shoes as we go through all of the book of Romans and actually all the Bible. You need to know context. But it's so important to really understand what Paul is going to say throughout this by putting ourselves in their mindset. <clears throat> he anticipates this question they would have. Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? So the Jew-Gentile question seemed to be always on the forefront of their minds back then. Uh, is, is this a Jew thing? Is this a Gentile thing? Which category does it fit in? So Paul says, verse 29, yes, of the Gentiles also. Verse 30, seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. So one God, he says, if there's one God, that means there's one way of salvation for all people, whether you're a circumcised Jew or you're an uncircumcised Gentile, it's all by faith. So just as Jew and Gentiles are sinners, every single person is a sinner, Jew and Gentile are both saved the same way as well. Then Paul anticipates another question, primarily probably from the Jewish listeners. Verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? And to that, Paul says, God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now, some of, them, some of the people sitting there might say, okay, Paul, if getting, by save, or getting saved by faith, that's how the, all this happens, then I guess what you're saying is we should just write a big V-O-I-D over the whole Old Testament, over the whole law. Let's just void that out. Is that what you're saying then? What's the point of all that? Now this kind of question, if somebody would ask a question like this, it really reveals that people thought that the law could save them. That's what it's showing. Now, in the, so in the strongest possible terms, Paul says, absolutely not, God forbid. In, in other words, and what that means is, may it never be, may it never be. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his word. We would never, ever want to void one single word of God. So God's law is perfect. Why is it perfect? Because it came from a perfect mind and a perfect heart. It came from God himself. And the law is still very profitable uh, for our daily living. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for purity, all of those things. In fact, Paul uses the law uh, many times to morally instruct believers. In fact, we'll see later that God gives us grace. The reason, one of the reasons he gives us grace is so that we'll obey his commandments. So Paul's point here, he's saying, I'm not voiding the law. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm pointing out that the law was never intended to save you. By doing those things, it's never intended to get you to heaven. That's not what it's about. And he said earlier in chapter 3, in verse 20, he said, but through the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, again, is an act of God's grace to show us what sin looks like and what righteousness looks like. Through the law, we understand good. We understand evil. In fact, it, through the law, we actually understand how to love God. 
and how to love others and how we desperately need a savior. We learn all of those things. Again, it's like a mirror. It can show us what's right and what's wrong with us, but a mirror alone can't fix us. But a mirror alone can tell us you need someone to fix you. (laughs) And that's where Jesus comes in and helps us fix the problem. Now, therefore, Paul says, I'm not voiding it out. I'm actually establishing the law. That word establish means causing it to stand. Causing to stand. In other words, the law still stands, and it's doing its job, as it always has. It's not void. And to prove that you can't be saved by deeds of the law, he's now going to give a couple of examples. All right, so first example we're going to see is Abraham, saved and, and made righteous before the law. So these are examples from the Old Testament on how people were saved back then. Same way we're saved now. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? Again, let's remember that every single Jew revered Abraham in the highest possible way. There's nobody higher in their minds than Abraham. And what they really thought was that anything that applied to Abraham also applied to to them because he was their father. William Barclay uh, explains that Jewish teachers of Paul's day actually had a saying. This was their saying. What is written of Abraham is also written of his children. So it means that the promises uh, that were given to Abraham extend to all his descendants. And as a Jew, they were, they, uh, we are a descendant of Abraham, therefore every promise descends to us. So J- Jewish ears, as Paul is writing this, the Jewish ears are perked up, okay, What are you writing about Abraham? Verse two, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So Paul says, listen, if works saved Abraham, like most Jews believed, then Abraham did have a good reason to glory or to boast in his own accomplishment. You know, uh, uh, not, not that Abraham would, but he would have reason to. That's what Paul is saying. So imagine Abraham now walking around heaven and uh, bragging to everybody, I made it here through my good works. I made it here because of the things I did. I was a good person, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly did. And Paul is saying, listen, if, if that's how he made it, then he would have reason to boast. But he couldn't have boasted before God because God knew how Abraham really did get his righteousness. <laughs> There's, God understood because, as we're going to see right in the next verse, for what saith Scripture, verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul directs us back to the Old Testament to see how those Old Testament people were saved. And he says, look at this Scripture here in Genesis chapter 15. We are saved, Abraham was saved by belief. So now we're actually going to look at Genesis 15. I'll encourage you to turn your Bible to Genesis 15 because Paul is directing us to that. Now at this point here, what we're about to look at, I want us all to remember this, that Abraham is now about 85 years old. Now when Abraham was young, God had promised him something. He'd given him the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant, this promise from God. You will get a land, you will, get, you will have seed, Many, many seed, and then you will have a blessing. There will be a blessing that will come through you. Now, at this time in in Abraham's life, his name was still Abram. 
Abram, the name Abram means exalted father. (laughs) Interesting name. He was still not a father. 85 years old and he doesn't have one child and his name means exalted father. That must have hurt him every day he heard his name being mentioned. He and his wife Sarai were childless and now at 85 and her at 75, she's past, she's long past menopause. Would he still, would Abraham still believe God when the promise now that he would have a child seemed more impossible than ever? Genesis 15 verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, fear not, Abram, exalted father, I am thy shield, an exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. In other words, listen, I'm past my prime, God, It appears that you're going to do this a different way. You promised me something, a seed, and you have not done it. And so I guess now your plan must be that this is going to go through my servant. My line, my seed will go through my servant here, Eliezer. Is he the one that you have planned to carry on my name? And Abraham had no idea. You can can see Abraham was clueless as to how God was going to do this. And remember, that's... Just like us, we get a promise from God and sometimes we are clueless on how God is gonna take care of this. Lord, I have no idea. Maybe you'll do it this way. Maybe you'll do it this way. And we throw out ideas for God, but God says, no, no, no. Hold on, I have it all under control. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came unto him saying, this shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels (laughs) shall be thine heir. Verse five, and he brought him forth abroad, that is God brought Abram forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars and if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, listen to this, so shall thy seed be. Now think of the context here. God brought him forth abroad. That basically just means God told him to go outside. So the the picture here, literally, Abraham, step out of your tent, Abraham, and go outside, it's nighttime. I want you to look up now. Look at all the stars and see if you can number them, Abraham. I wonder at this point if God actually waited for Abraham to actually try first before he said anything. Go ahead, go ahead, try, try to number them. Try to count them, Abraham. See what you can do. And he said, Abraham, this is how many descendants you're going to have from your seed. Think of this barren, 86-year-old man, 85-year-old man, staring up into the night sky now. This old man standing there looking up and saying, God, you're telling me I still am going to have a child. God has just promised something to Abraham that is humanly impossible. But like every promise of God, listen, it's either true or it's not true. (laughs) That's it, those are the only two choices. And now the ball is in Abraham's court and Abram has to decide, is this promise true? Can I trust what God says? Can I believe what he says is true? And his response, verse six, and he believed in the Lord and he, that is God, counted it to him for righteousness. Believe, 
That word believe in Hebrew is A-M-A-N, aman, where we get our word amen. So this is basically saying Abraham heard all that. He's standing there, 85 years old, standing up on the top of the mountain, and God says, you will have your seed that I have promised. And Abram says, amen. Amen, God. I trust you. It will be done. Whatever you say. And at that moment, God says, he counted that faith, that belief, that saying amen, God counted it to him for righteousness. And that's what Paul is telling us. This is how faith for salvation works. God places righteousness on Abraham's account the moment he just says amen to God. Counted, counted it to him for righteousness. The word counted is a banking term. It's literally like someone going to the bank and putting money into your account that squares everything up and leaves you with no more debts. Everything is paid. He puts plenty of money in your account. Reminds me of 2020 and 21 when the government kept filling our bank accounts with money. Now they're sucking it all back out. But anyway, yeah. Paul, Paul also uses the word counted here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. This Greek word that means to put into one's account. Now th think about this for just a minute. Okay, Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed and God counted it to him for righteousness. To put to one's account. This, this Greek word is actually used 11 times in this chapter. And it's translated reckoned, imputed, and counted. Verse 4, verse 9, verse 10, verse 6, verse 8, verse 11, verse 22, and verse 24. All of them are the same word, Greek word. It's just translated counted, reckoned, uh, imputed. See, when a man works, he earns a salary, and this money is put to his account. But Abraham did not work for his righteousness. That's what we're finding out. He simply trusted. He just simply said, amen to God. And it was Jesus then who put, who did the work on the cross and put then the righteousness in Abraham's account. Again, it doesn't say that God made him perfectly righteous. It says that God counted or imputed righteousness into his account. This is called the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Uh, by the way, if you want to try that sometime, go to the bank and say, I'd like to, put, I'd like to impute this money into my account, please, and just see what they say. But Abraham's standing, his standing before God, your ba his bank account is full in heaven. He has righteousness enough for heaven. His standing was right with God now, even though his current state and his situation was still at times sinful. He was still going to sin in his state. But his standing before God, his account in heaven was full. Verse 3, for what saith the scripture? This is verse Chapter Romans 4, verse 3 again. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So if God had a works-based system, Paul says, with Abraham... Then, then God wouldn't have said he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Instead, God would have said something like, Abraham did good and therefore I owe him heaven. He earned it. That's what he gets. 
It would be a debt thing, not a grace thing. It's either one or the other. You can't have both. You can't mix even the two. Some people think you can mix the two. I can believe in Jesus, but then also I have to do works. I have to go to church. I have to go to confession, and I have to do these certain things, and if I do all these certain things, then God makes sure that I get to heaven. But just think about how that must look to God when we say something like that. Let's say, for example, that um, uh, Bruno was such a nice guy to me, he loves me so much, that Bruno went out and said, Pastor Luke, I'm gonna buy you a $50,000 car. Uh, That would be really nice of Bruno to do that. I would appreciate it, too, if you could, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then, you know, uh, Bruno came, and one Sunday I just said, you know, Bruno, I'm just so overwhelmed with this amazing uh, gift that you gave, this $50,000. I just feel like I need to do something. And I, I just, I have this uh, quarter that I, could I just put that in your hand? And I give him that quarter. And I say, I just, man, I, I appreciate it. And then whenever I'm in front of everybody, I say, I just got to tell you folks something that uh, Bruno and I bought this car together out here. And I want you to come look at it if you would. <clears throat> See, this is, this is a gift. And any slightest little thing that I could think that I could give for it would be ridiculous and it would be insulting. And that's the problem with a works-based salvation. It's the boasting aspect. Can you imagine how horrible heaven would be with a works-based salvation? Everyone would be walking around bragging for eternity about what they did on earth. I I listen to the arrogance. You listen on TV sometimes to the sports guys or the politicians for 10 seconds of their bragging. And I'm angry. I can't take it anymore. But imagine an eternity with this. An eternity with people talking about all the good stuff they did on earth and how it just earned them this and got them this in heaven. And it was just such an amazing, what a horrible, horrible situation. It is insulting to think when God says, you know, I gave my son's blood to die on the cross. It is the only thing that could rescue you and give you enough righteousness to get to heaven. How dare you say that one little work or little things that you have done have earned enough righteousness to be perfect in heaven. That's ridiculous. No way. You know what's gonna happen in heaven? We're all gonna be walking around just saying amazing grace, amazing grace, amazing grace. We'll be singing it, we'll be whistling it. We won't be able to stop talking about how unbelievable it is that God would love us enough to give us this eternal home. We don't deserve any of this, but God gave it to us. So it's not reckoned of debt, it's reckoned of grace. But Abraham wasn't the only Old Testament person who experienced this imputed righteousness. Paul gives another example here, and that is David. He got righteousness not before the law, but even after the law. Verse six, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. David, the hero king of Israel, held in utmost reverence by all the Jews. He was a man after God's own heart. But even David, if he were trying to get to heaven with his own works, would be left out. He wouldn't have made it. Everyone knows about the faults that man had. He, just like everybody else, needed a miraculous righteousness to come into him, outside of himself, to be put on his account. He needed a miraculous righteousness that was without the law. 
without the deeds of the law, something that only God can give. And Paul gives us a quote from what David said here in Psalm 32, which was written at a time of repentance after David's great sin. And here's what, what he said, verse 7, saying, Blessed are they, blessed are they, whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. David here gushes about how blessed a person is who has his sins forgiven and covered. I love that. And then he gives the other side of imputed righteousness, and that is that the Lord will not impute sin. Not only will God impute or deposit righteousness into our account, but he will not impute our sin. The moment somebody says amen to God, there's an amazing heavenly transaction that we can't see with our eyes. God says, I will impute righteousness under your account, and I will not impute sin anymore into that account. He may discipline you, and he may discipline me because of our sin here. Yes, oh, absolutely he will. In fact, David David was disciplined because of his sin here on this earth, deeply and, and very harshly. But in that heavenly account, in that bank account in heaven, you are, it, is, it says righteousness, all in it. Now do you see why David was beside himself with, when he said, how blessed is the person whom the Lord will not impute sin. God, that God would do this for me. And, you know, it's, an amaz- it's amazing, maybe one of the most amazing things on, on this earth, on this side of heaven, to witness when the conviction is so strong on a, on a human heart. But then that great conviction that brings somebody to their needs then is met with the fact that God can and will forgive all of those sins. The deepest, the darkest sins. God will forgive and not impute that to your account. One such story to me is Chuck Colson. Now, <clears throat> I was deeply moved when I read Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, and I would recommend it. But he, 30 years after his conversion, wrote uh, this little thing about his, at the 30th anniversary of being saved. Here's what he wrote. 30 years ago today, I visited Tom Phillips, president of the Raytheon Company, at his home outside of Boston. I'd represented Raytheon before going to the White House, and I was about to start again. But I visited for another reason as well. I knew Tom had become a Christian, and he seemed so different. I wanted to ask him what had happened. That night, he read to me from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, particularly a chapter about the great sin that is pride. A proud man is always walking through life, looking down on other people and other things, said Lewis. As a result, he cannot see something above himself, immeasurably superior, God. Tom that night told me about encountering Christ in his own life. He didn't realize it, but I was in the depths of deep despair over Watergate, watching the president I had helped for four years flounder in office. I'd also heard that I might become a target of the investigation as well. In short, my world was collapsing. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively 
but didn't let on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him, but said no. I'd see him sometime after I read C.S. Lewis's book. But when I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy, I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. Listen, I don't know if you've ever been there, or if you've ever been with someone when the dam breaks, and they feel the depths of their sin and despair, and they see the gift of God's grace in Jesus. There's nothing like it on earth. And when you get a taste of it, you want to keep being a part of it. You want to keep delivering that message so that that next person can hear, and that next person can hear the message that'll save them. Remember, Chuck Colson did, again, have to pay a price on this earth for his sins, and even go to prison. But his home in heaven was secure, and he went on to lead many, many people to Christ. Listen to these words again from David. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You are very, very blessed today if you're saved, and the Lord will not impute sins to your account. You are a very, very, very blessed person. But Paul knew that there were still questions in the mind of the early Christians. I'm going to go through these quickly. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that, the, that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Again, the Jew-Gentile question comes up, as it would so often back then. This time on the issue of circumcision, a very important issue to the Jews. So, Paul, is this a Jew thing? Since, since you're talking about Abraham the father of the Jews, so this salvation kind of seems to come through the Jews, and so that's a, it's a Jew thing. And what a wonderful response Paul gives here. I love this. Verse 10, how was it reckoned then? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In other words, when did this righteousness get reckoned to Abraham's account? When, it, when did Genesis 15 happen? Was it uh, when Abraham was a circumcised Jew or was it before he was circumcised? And all the Jews would immediately know the answer. He was circumcised after Genesis 15. In fact, Abraham was circumcised, get this, at age 99. That's Genesis 17. I can't think about circumcision at that age, but it is true. <laughs> Paul's point, Abraham was saved before he was a Jew, before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision and keeping the law had nothing to do with his salvation. Righteousness was imputed by faith before all of it. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness may, may be imputed unto them also. And the father of the circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. What is this saying? Basically, Abraham had faith before circumcision, which means he's the father of all who have faith. Whether circumcised Jew or uncircumcised Gentile, it doesn't matter. 
Circumcision was simply a sign and a seal, a physical sign that pointed to what was supposed to be happening in the heart. That was the removing of the old flesh and becoming a new person. And it was a physical seal, a seal of ownership of God on the Jewish male. You are now part of the family. And this is just an outward demonstration, a seal of that. Like a king's seal on a letter that is an outward symbol of what's inside. Circumcision to the Jews is similar to what baptism is for us. It's a physical sign that points to what Christ has done in our hearts inwardly. Jesus has given us a new life and we're clean. And it's a physical seal of the spiritual ownership that God has on our life. So neither circumcision or baptism is necessary for salvation, but they point to a personal salvation that we all have in Jesus. So Abraham receives this sign and seal, but only after he'd already put his faith in God. That's the point here. And after he had received righteousness, he gets these signs, this sign of circumcision. So Abraham, therefore, is the father of all, it says, who put their faith in Christ. Not just the Jews. He's a spiritual father of everyone who places their faith in Christ. That's why we sing the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, you're a, you're a son of Abraham. You're a daughter of Abraham. So Paul comes full, full circle. He reiterates that all this did not come by works. Verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise of made of none effect. In other words, if you want to flip God's plan of faith upside down and claim that we get to heaven by works or by obedience to the law, then you basically erase the whole need for faith. And the prom- all his promises that he gives to those who trust in him, all of those are erased with it. And all we're left with is just a works-based re- religion. You do this, and you'll get this. You do this, you'll get this. And that, what will that lead to? If I do good, if I do good, if I do everything exactly right, then I can earn heaven. Well, what's that going to lead to? Judgment. Verse 15, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression, which is another way of saying where there is law, there is transgression of that law. The point is, if you want to be saved by deeds of the law, if that's the plan you're going to go with, then here's what you'll find at the end. God's wrath. Because here's how this is going to work. You're going to try, and then at some point you're going to break the law like everybody does. And, and then the law is going to kick in like it's supposed to, and it does its job, and it, it exposes you as a transgressor. You didn't do it. You did not do it. You could not keep it perfectly. Nobody in this room could keep it absolutely 100% perfect. So then God, what is he going to do? He said, well, I said you had to keep it perfectly. So I'm now going to pour out wrath on you because you did not. And you did not accept my gift. And if that's really the way you're going to go, if you're going to go the works-based route, that's how it's going to end. You cannot be righteous enough for heaven. There is just no way. There has to be a better way. Verse 16, therefore it is of faith. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. You are, it is sure then, not to that only which is of the law, but, also, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, the way anyone has ever gotten the promise is by grace through faith. 
That's how Abraham got saving righteousness. And if you believe like Abraham, that's how you're going to get saving righteousness. That's how I'm going to get saving righteousness. And that's the only way to make you a sure spiritual child of Abraham. There is no other way. There is no other way this morning. How blessed are you? How blessed are you? How blessed am I? How blessed is every person who places their trust in Jesus Christ? You believe, you say amen, and it's counted for righteousness. It's counted. Just say amen, and all those promises are true. Lord, We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.